You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean. We are back in the book of Acts this week, back in January. We started in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. We've been working through uh, ever since. Took a break uh, in July to do Christmas in July. Now that we're in August, we're back in the book of Acts. Uh, so in Acts 17 this morning, we'll be in it until we finish the book, uh, probably by the end of the year. And we're going to actually spend four weeks in Acts 17. It's such an important chapter of the Bible. We see a lot of things happening here. We want to make sure we don't miss anything. So we're going to take four weeks uh, to go through this text. Before I pray, before I jump in, uh, just a reminder that we have an 8.30 and an 11.30 service as well. Uh, so this feels a little busy for you, uh, especially in our children's ministry and City Church Kids. I would love for you to consider uh, if we're going to one of those services. Uh, we don't even have college students back yet. Uh, and look around. We're grateful to God for this. Uh, but to create some space at 8.30 or, or at this service, 8.30, 11.30 would be a good option uh, for you. Again, just throwing that out there. And we'd love for you to consider doing that. Also, August 13th uh, at 6 o'clock is our vision night. We're talking about what's happening here through missions, get a, give a building update of what we're headed with that, coming home with the latest news there, and just to celebrate all God's doing here in our church. So if you call City Church your home or just want to check things out some more, we'd love for you to come that night, August 13th at 6 o'clock. So think about 8.30, think about 11.30, we need some folks to make the move, and let's just keep rolling full speed ahead into the school year, talking about Jesus. Sound good? All right, let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your love for us. We come together this morning as people who are loved by our creator and how that's understood ultimately in what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. What an amazing truth to know that the one who made the world also knows us by name, loves us, gave his life for us. Lord, we are thankful for the resurrection of Christ so we can proclaim his victory and be assured of his love because he actually is the one he claimed to be. As, as school gets started, that you be with our students as they go back this week. Uh, that their lights will shine before others, so others may see their good works and glorify you as a result. I just ask you, allow them to be loving and kind and bold, uh, that they'll choose you every day instead of the world. I also pray for our teachers and administrators, staff members at the schools across our county. I just ask you, give them a great school year, that they'll just thrive and flourish this year in their profession, and that they will see their job as a ministry as Christians, uh, and that you will use them for your glory in the lives of students and parents and families, for uh, students who are playing sports this fall, part of clubs, anything they're doing, Lord, we ask we all see life as mission, being a part of what you're doing here in Tallahassee. Please be with other churches in our community besides us as we gather today. We know we're on the same team and not doing this alone, but there's been churches who have gathered a lot longer than City Church has been in existence. We ask that all of us uh, today will proclaim the name of Jesus. Keep the enemy we ask out of this place and out of our city. Let us be bold for Christ, the one who loved us first. We're thankful for all of us in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Acts chapter 17, Paul's on what's called his second missionary journey, and we're told this, that he's just going town to town talking about Jesus, that he really is the one he claimed to be. Faith comes by hearing, we're told, and hearing by the word of God. People need to hear about the good news of Jesus. So after they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. So here he is not skipping the religious places. It's easy to think that mission is about just maybe atheists or agnostics or skeptics. He's actually going into the religious center again, and Luke, who wrote Acts, gives this detail. He says, as usual, as in par for the course, Paul regularly stopped in the synagogue to share the good news of Christ with his own people. Paul was Jewish, and his love for his people, he wanted him to know that the Messiah who had been promised to them for generations actually was the one known as Jesus Christ, who died and who rose again. So as usual, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, so for three weeks, 
reason with them from the scriptures, not from cable news, not from his social media, not from talking points, from the scriptures, showing them what their Bible they believed in, the Old Testament that these Jewish people knew and valued and held on to and had been taught, what they believed in, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. One of the rejections they had towards Jesus was that he died. Like, what kind of Messiah dies in their eyes? The Messiah is going to come and take over Rome, and he's going to be our king in a military kind of sense, and the Jewish people are going to have a great conquest. That was their mindset. But the scriptures pointed to something different. The Old Testament they believed in and valued pointed to one who was called the suffering servant. The sacrifice system of lambs, blood being shed, for the atonement of their sins, was pointing to one whose blood would be shed ultimately for God's people to be forgiven of their sins. And they would reject Christ because just like any other Messiah who had come before him, Messiah as in the claiming to be a Messiah, they died. But what sets Jesus apart is Easter, that he rose from the grave, that he was the one who showed us that Christmas actually worked, that he was the one that he claimed to be. So he says, no, I'm going to show you from the scriptures, from the Bible, you believe the Old Testament, that it was necessary for Messiah to suffer. He didn't just die randomly, he died in our place. He died as a substitute for our sins. We can only claim forgiveness because of what he came to do, which is die. But what else did he do and rise from the dead? He said, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you. Who is he? He's the Messiah. He's the liberator. He's the one sent by God to come and die for the sins of God's people. And there's some good news in verse 4. Some of them were persuaded. They became believers in Christ. And they joined Paul and Silas, we're told. And they became a part of the faith, became a part of the church. And even people that weren't Jewish, Gentiles, Greeks were there as well, apparently in the crowd. And including a large number of God-fearing Greeks. And then he includes this detail. This is Luke. Luke's very detailed. As well as a number of the leading women. This is to remind us that women were absolutely included in the plans and purposes and promises and people of God. This is actually revolutionary. Because in this time frame, women were oftentimes uh, oppressed. They were considered second class, not in the kingdom of God. Regardless of what you've heard before, Christianity values women at the deepest level, even including and reminding us here that they were there and they were included. And they just weren't women, they were leading women. Don't ever buy the lie that Christianity is anti-women. Because over and over again in the scriptures, we see Jesus even prioritize women. The first people to see the resurrected, or understand about the resurrection were women. That's not a random detail, in other words. So what did he do? He reasoned from the scriptures, Paul did. He used the Bible to show them who Jesus was. Because the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is ultimately about Jesus Christ. It's easy to skip over the Old Testament and just kind of think it's isolated stories for another place and another time. Some people even think the Old Testament God's like a different God. Like that's how far our views can go sometimes on valuing the Old Testament. But what did he use to proclaim Christ to them? Because New Testament hadn't been written yet. Paul hadn't, was in the middle of writing his letters. He's showing them what had been taught, taught to them from the scriptures for generations, from the Bible, that ultimately all the scriptures tell the story of Jesus Christ. Back in Genesis, when sin enters the world, God's promise is that from the offspring of a woman will come about the Messiah, will come about the Savior. So out of the gate in Genesis chapter 3, we already see it being pointed towards one who would come, who is the Messiah. And what Paul is saying is, he has come, and his name is Jesus Christ. You're, we, we killed him, but he has risen from the grave. 
Jesus said this on the road to Emmaus. After his resurrection, he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, it must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, being able to understand the Bible or even dependent upon God for that. By his grace, he opens our eyes to hear and understand. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah, the one that later Paul in the synagogue says is Jesus, will suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. And here's Paul still in the synagogue for three Sabbaths proclaiming this about Jesus. What happened in that scene was it's called the road to Emmaus. It's after the resurrection and the disciples didn't know about it yet. So some of them are walking down the Emmaus road trying to get out of town because they're embarrassed that they put their trust in this one called Jesus they really thought was the Messiah. And what happened to him? He died a shameful death through crucifixion on a cross. And they're going, well, let's get out of town. This is embarrassing. We're probably going to be mocked in the community. We just committed like this complete social just disaster for ourselves. We're even going to leave our own families who are outraged. We trust in Christ because we believed he was true. And what happened? He died just like everybody else. We've been duped. We've been lied to. We fell into a Ponzi scheme of spiritually speaking. And all of a sudden Jesus appears, resurrected on the road with them, and he's talking to them. They don't recognize him at first, and they're going, yeah, we thought he was the one. And Jesus says, guys, the Bible that you claim to believe in, that you've been taught as good Jews, it told you that the Messiah would come and suffer. And I told you over and over again that I would suffer, and that would rise again. And they're like, oh yeah, we, hey, suffered and rose again Quit walking out of town all sad. Rejoice and celebrate and worship because I actually am the one that I claim to be. Jesus did these things. He suffered and he died. He is the Messiah. Believe this. And some join the faith. It also mentions God-fearing Greeks. Now, when you first read that, my, my, my first read that went, well, it's easy to think, why would someone who's God-fearing need to come to faith? That sounds like a contradiction. If you're God-fearing, don't you kind of have faith? Well, this shows us that religious people need Jesus as much as atheists and agnostics or people who are just kind of generic spiritual because belief merely in God is not enough. James wrote, you believe in God? Okay, good, congratulations. This is James chapter two. Even the devil believes in God. If anybody knows there's a devil, or excuse me, if anyone knows there's a God, it's the devil. He actually has really good theology. If anyone knows that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, it's the devil. So what he's saying is mere belief and acknowledgement that you're not an atheist, that you're a theist, does not bring about saving faith because an intellectual belief or just an acceptance of some kind of concept called God or theism does not forgive sins. Only the shedding of blood can forgive sins. So what he's telling them is if you're going to actually believe in God, it's incomplete if you don't accept his son. Jesus said this in John 14 verse 1, believe in God, yes, believe also in me. John 17, this is eternal life. Like this is forever. That they may know you. He's praying in John 17 to the Father, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ, who actually is God himself. Be not mistaken. If you believe in God but reject Christ, the scriptures would conclude that you don't really actually believe in God. 
That might sound unfair, that might sound harsh, but how we understand God ultimately is through his son. So to reject Jesus is to reject God because Jesus is God. So what do we do instead? We, re- we respond to Christ. We believe his good name. We trust in him. We repent of our sins and believe he is the one, only one, who can die for the sins of God's people. So what does Paul do? He reasoned. He ex- I'm sure there was a little back and forth. There probably got a little intense at times, but he also explained. He wasn't there to be confusing. He was patient three Sabbaths. He walked them through. Why Jesus? He says he proved also. And by proved, it means he was using the Old Testament and tying it to Jesus over and over again, going, see this, see this, see that. And they're going, oh, for three whole Sabbaths. And the message being that they couldn't quite comprehend is that the Messiah actually had to suffer. So he's seen people come to know the Lord. And I think we can take the same approach. We can reason. We can explain. We can prove through the scriptures. But you know what else we can do? We can reason and explain and prove through our own lives that I've met Christ and he has changed my life. Don't be afraid to tell your story. Everyone in this room has a powerful testimony. It's easy to think the only ones that have powerful testimonies are the real dramatic stories. You know, it's like I was just having a bad day and I went in my room by myself and painted my face like a clown and had my cat lick my nose and then I met Jesus. I don't know where that came from, sorry. But then then I met Jesus. That's not my story, by the way. It's like, wow, what a story. Like those, oftentimes whenever you have like a gathering, like like an event or some kind of evangelistic crusade, it's always a dramatic story. You know, like I was passed out and I met Christ and, you know, I I was, you know, on my, you know, 17th marriage, then I saw Jesus and does God work that way? Heck yeah. And we should celebrate powerful stories of God taking people from death to life, like real conversion taking place. We should celebrate those things. But every person in this room who's a Christian, you know what we all have in common? You were dead in your sins, and you were made alive in Jesus. There's nothing boring about that. Every single person has an amazing story to tell, and the story's beginning and conclusion is the work of Christ on your behalf, how you understood and experienced and know God's love. We reason, we explain, and we prove. We also testify to the greatness of Christ over ourselves. So this sounds like a great scene. We're seeing people trust in Jesus, God-fearing Greeks, leading women, Jewish people in the synagogue. They're joining Paul and Silas. So you think that would mean a celebration. The angels were told in Luke 15, celebrate when one person comes to faith in Christ. Like the things that get heaven excited, that actually get heaven fired up, are seeing conversions. People come to faith. So you think that all was going to be well here, but in the next text, we see that trouble was coming. Just in the next few verses. Because here are people coming to know Jesus, Paul's in the synagogue, and Thessalonica is about to go bananas. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul mentions, he's writing to the church there, he's recalling and mentions the persecution he endured and that they were going through while he was there. Before we get to that text, it's interesting, when we read that first, first few verses of Acts 17, we see that Paul's posture was explanation, it was reasoning, it was teaching, he didn't just drop a bomb and walk out the door. He stayed for three Sabbaths. Since he was committed, it probably also meant he had a relationship there. In 1 Thessalonians, he talks about remembering them fondly. So here's a guy who invested his time, invested relationally, and we're not told he went in cracking whips and yelling at everybody and throwing haymakers everywhere. He went to the synagogue, invested there, and he explained who Jesus was. He was decisive, in other words, in his posture. 
not divisive. He was decisive. Jesus is the Messiah. We're a decisive people as Christians. There are certain things we can debate on and figure out and, and maybe say, okay, we can agree to disagree. We can't agree to disagree on who is Jesus. Like, he is the Messiah. We're a decisive people. Either Easter's true or it's not. Either Christmas is worth celebrating or it's not. He's the Messiah or he's not. Either he's the one who saves or he's not. We're a decisive people. And that was Paul's posture. It wasn't divisive. But here's what we're going to see. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. But the Jews, verse 5, became jealous and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. Poor Jason. They searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. They're going to people's homes, trying to find people to drag out. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason. And some of the brothers, which are believers in this context, before the city officials shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down, what an accusation, have come here too. And Jason has welcomed them, the nerve of that man. And what are they doing? How are they turning the world upside down? They're acting contrary to Caesar's decrees. You know what they're saying? They're saying there's another king and that his name is Jesus, which would have been illegal in that world at that time. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. How dare they proclaim another king besides Caesar? Start taking a security bond. There were some negotiations. It was costly to Jason and the others. They released them. But those words, world upside down, does that translate in the fact that every person in this room as a Christian should see their responsibility as turning the world upside down? Remember, we're about consistency, not intensity, as we talked about last week. I don't think any of us by ourselves literally turn the world upside down in a spiritual sense. It's probably wrong to use the word literally. To literally turn the world upside down makes no sense, obviously. It's a figure of speech here. But what's happening here? Is this go and do likewise? Is this the call? Go turn the world upside down? That can seem like a very lofty idea for those of us that have much smaller contexts. And technically, they were just in Thessalonica and a couple other cities. It's only the second missionary journey. The whole world hadn't heard the gospel. So the whole world hadn't been turned upside down spiritually yet. There was many who were yet to hear. So what's he referring to here? Well, there is some figure of speech there, but the world right now, and has been since sin entered the world, is turned wrong side up spiritually. It's been going backwards it's been going in reverse ever since sin entered the world. I mean, that's not new, breaking news for you. Just look around. Look around our society. Watch the news. Scroll through social media. The world is broken. It's turned wrong side up. But when Jesus changes you, he changes you instantaneously as in he makes you new. But then there's a process of God being patient with us and making us more like Jesus Christ. But when he changes you, you seem upside down to the world. You're the one that seems different. You seem the one who is upside down. The world doesn't see itself as wrong side up. It sees you as upside down. And what's the accusation here? They're all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, it says. They're saying there's another king, this Jesus fellow. But what does that mean? Talk about turning your world upside down. It means if Jesus actually is king, 
ultimately Caesar's not. He might have the title and the responsibility in his context in his little kingdom, but if Jesus really is the one true king, it means Caesar's ultimately not the true king. So today there isn't a Caesar, but how do we look at this now? It's you and it's me. If Jesus really is king, it means I'm not. If Jesus really is king, it means that you're not. See, self-autonomy threatened is what causes us to have riots today. Where do those riots take place? They take place in our hearts. That's where the riots take place, when our self-autonomy is threatened, especially the riot of my mind and my heart. See, Jesus is king. If he really is king, you know what that does? First thing it does is it contradicts me. It contradicts you. It's been said before that people don't reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. It's been said for years. But because it contradicts themselves. You might say, well, are you sure the Bible doesn't contradict itself? Actually, if we really sat down and like reasoned and showed, the Bible fits in perfect harmony together. Like it's one continuous story from beginning to end that's in perfect harmony. It doesn't contradict itself. If you know it and understand it and read it and ask questions and learn, People don't reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. They think that's what they do. We reject the Bible because it contradicts us. Because we want to be the ones who reign on our own throne. And we want the ones to do what's right in our own eyes. But Jesus' king is going to speak directly to that. And it's going to mean that the Christian story is one long story of believing I need to get over myself. You need to get over yourself. It's one continuous, consistent walk of striving by God's grace to do that. Because we don't reject the Bible because it contradicts us. Or or because itself. We reject the Bible because it contradicts us. And we want that self-autonomy. So what do I do instead? I believe the lies. There's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. I believe the lies are going to go around God for all I'm looking for rather than right to him. Jesus' king contradicts me because it means there's another king besides myself. And he's the one true king. And I'm not a king at all. The same is true for you. The second thing is, Jesus' king stands against the world's narrative. Do whatever makes you happy. Do whatever you want to do personally. In the moment, whatever works, like you do it. Abide by this, claim this, like this, act this way. But Jesus' king stands against the world's narrative because it means that anyone I'm trying to please doesn't have the ultimate authority over me. So here you come in, in the book of Acts, in this city. A very secular city. It had a synagogue, but a very secular city. And he proclaimed there is one true king, and his name is Jesus. And what happens? They riot. Because it messes with them. And it stands against everything that they've been told to believe. The third thing is it gives us peace in persecution. Not the absence. It doesn't say the lack of pain in persecution but it gives us peace in persecution, knowing that if Jesus is the Messiah, that everything he promised us will ultimately come true. And what has he ultimately promised us? A new heavens and a new earth and life with him for all eternity. That he'll never leave us nor forsake us. That he is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and he's the end. Caesar cannot claim to be the beginning and the end. Neither can I, neither can you. It also gives us courage. If Jesus is king, I can be courageous because ultimately I answer to him and not to anybody else. Like, he is the king. And how amazing that he's not some abstract king that's not connected to his people. 
that he knows us by name and wants a personal relationship with us. I'm gonna grow in courage as I grow in my relationship with God. The more time I spend with God, the more I remind myself the good news of the gospel, the more I remind myself that I'm loved by God unconditionally, I begin to realize that all the other loves out there are extremely conditional. School starting this week. The pressure is gonna be there for you guys to conform to something, to try to perform for an audience that you really hope is watching, that they'll accept you. But here's the truth. They don't accept you. They accept you temporarily. They accept you conditionally. As long as you say these things, think these things, do these things, why not go with the one not only who accepts you unconditionally, he accepted you first when you rejected him. Following Jesus is worth it. And you can have courage because he is king and he is alive and he is ruling and reigning and one day he will come back and make sense of all this stuff. It's worth it. You ever notice something? This is me, I was just thinking about this this week. You ever notice that nobody, so persecution's broken out here in Thessalonica. You ever notice that no one ever cares? Like in higher ed or the media or entertainment, no one ever seems to care about the Muslim view on sexuality. It's like really intense. I'm not even talking about fundamentalist Muslims, I'm about like mainstream Muslims. It's like, I'm not, I'm not knocking anybody, I'm just telling you what they, it's really intense like really intense, about like marriage and about gender roles and about sexuality. I mean, it's like really intense. We know that no one ever cares. But like evangelicals believe, because of scriptures, that like Christians, that marriage between a man and a woman, you say it out loud, it's Thessalonica all over again. Like why is that? You ever notice that nobody seems to care about the Mormon view on the afterlife? You know, I'm not knocking anybody. Just telling you what they believe. It's like saying, hey, Christians believe Jesus rose from the grave. Yeah, we do. We do. Mormons believe, this is just like 101, like foundational Mormonism, that the goal is, and being a good Mormon, is that one day you will be God over your own planet. You'll be assigned a planet, and you'll populate through procreation as a God that planet. And you will rule and reign over that planet for all eternity. So they believe. That's so 101, Mormonism. In other words, that also means that if you're not Mormon, you don't get to do that. You will not be the highest celestial kingdom, as they call it, and you will not be able to populate your own planet. As in, you will miss out on these things. Nobody gets mad about that. Nobody cares. You're not offended by that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to just guess. You're not offended by that, are you? Like, not at all. You're like, oh, okay, I don't, I don't agree. That's wrong. There's one true God. I'm not going to become a God. Like, I don't agree with that. They're nice people. There's more Mormon churches in Tallahassee than there are publics, as it seems like. They're, they're nice, but I think they're wrong. I mean, it's just, it's like you're not mad. Culture's not mad. The media is not doing passive-aggressive posts about, you know, and headlines, clickbait about Mormons and their afterlife views, or Muslims and their view on sexuality. Christians clearly believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, because he said that, no one comes to the Father except through him. Bananas. Closed-minded, judgmental. You could lose your job for saying that and believing that. Why? Why does that freak everybody out? But whatever else believes, nobody cares. You ever, you ever notice that? Maybe I'm wrong in that observation. I don't know the exact answer. It's probably a long, long, long study. But I have a couple ideas. One, book of Ecclesiastes says that God's written eternity on our hearts. It means there's something in us, even though we're rejecting God, that, that knows 
that there, there's, there is a God and we're not him? There's something out there that, that, just, that God's done in us that, that, that sort of just calls us and woos us and pulls us and my friend Joe calls it a pebble in your shoe. There's just something there. But there's more than that. Believing in Jesus does not mean that tomorrow you start all these new rituals, the pillars of the faith in order to make sure you get to heaven, where now you start just trying to be a better person, trying to strive, trying to do better. Even though rituals can be helpful for things in your life, becoming a Christian doesn't mean you try really hard tomorrow to be a really good Christian so maybe you can inherit heaven in a kingdom one day. Becoming a Christian means you accept the free offer of grace. That Jesus died a death that you deserved to make you right with God. And you know what it does? It turns your world upside down. People are fine adding some rituals to their life. People are fine trying to be a better person. People don't want their worlds turned upside down. It was Don Carson, the theologian, who said that most people that reject, they, they want enough of Jesus to be associated with. Again, not atheists, not agnostics. They like want some Jesus to be associated with. Like kind of like moral compass, feel good, religious lessons, kind of your buddy, imaginary friend kind of idea, but not so much to be personally inconvenienced. I'm guilty of that all the time. Yes, believe in Christ, believe the gospel, think he's the Messiah. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not do too much there. Don't ask too much of me from the scriptures. When you have conversations with people in Tallahassee regularly about faith and those kind of things, it's rarely combative for me, it's rarely, I mean, our campus is probably different, but it's rarely hostile. Usually it's okay, I'm here, and they're willing to take like whatever this step looks like in faith, that they're ready to take this step, but there's like another step, that means like getting involved in the church, becoming more generous, uh, you know, repenting of certain sins in your life, relationship issues. It's like, yes, Jesus, but not too much. Not too much. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible didn't almost go to the cross. He didn't halfway die. He didn't halfway rise again. It was all in. So there's no neutrality when it comes to following Christ. I understand that we are like Americans in the West, and we're not under persecution, and it's easy to go all in. I get all that. I get all that. But we're not exempt from a full, devoted faith of following Christ. Actually, Jesus even calls us to more. That's why he warns us about what money can do to us. He doesn't say money's bad. He warns what it can do to our hearts, what greed can do to our hearts. He can just, what, what quarrelsome, what unrepentant sin, what holding a grudge, all, all these things can do to us. They push us more to us being king and, rather than the Lord. Thank God we aren't being fed to lions like Christians before us have experienced in centuries past. Many have had far worse than us. But the reality is public disdain awkwardness at work, pressure to conform, being labeled at school, they're not figments of our persecution complex imagination. These things are really happening in real places, in real space, in real time to a lot of you right now. Paul was not being divisive. He was being decisive, yet it was immediately declared divisive and everybody went bananas. Here's what you need to know. The best PR firm on earth won't be able to keep us from being seen by some as backwards and accused of being bigoted. The, per, the one who loved perfectly, I've never loved perfectly, you've never loved perfectly. The one who loved perfectly, Jesus, they hated him. 
who in the world are we to think they're going to like us? But you know what? He was kind anyways, and he loved anyways, and he was compassionate anyways, and we're called to do the exact same things, but we're also aware that we're not expecting anything in return because it turns people's worlds upside down, and they don't want their world turned upside down. If you hold views on gender and sexuality that come from God's word rather than TikTok or higher ed, there's no way you can love your neighbor and social justice yourself enough to cultural acceptance. You can't. So we love and care about the needy and those that have in our community and have compassion, not because we're trying to get anyone's approval, but because we're working under the Lord. We want to please God, not man. So what we get in return is knowing that we're in step with who God wants us to be and what God wants us to be. They're never going to clap. And then you get your Christians who are scared. They won't admit it, but they fall the cultural pressure. And the cultural pressure a lot of times is like, I just want them to like me. I don't want to be seen as like that kind of Christian, whatever that kind of Christian is. And they will eventually. They will eventually. The goalposts move every day. So you can be viewed as like the, oh, so loving, greatest Christian ever. I wish all the Christians I knew were like you and all this kind of, like you, you can be viewed as that today, but come up with something two days from now that's a core Christian belief that they don't like, and guess what? You're all the bad things. So they get scared, and they do post calling for fellow Christians to give in to the demands of our age under the banner of love. But eventually, oftentimes, those people wind up leaving the faith altogether and they'll blame the church, and that's not to say the church across the world throughout history has not had issues as human beings that make mistakes and have hurt people way too many times. But most people I talk to that have deconstructed their faith, again, it's not that the Bible or the church contradicted itself, is that it contradicted them, which is Greek for, I want to sleep with and vote for whoever I want to. Usually comes down to sexual freedom and to politics. So what do we proclaim? Not vote a certain way. We proclaim Jesus is king. He's king over everything. He's king over our lives. Following Jesus does interfere with your life, and it's going to become more and more in- intrusive as culture continues to go further and further away. The world's upside down, but Jesus turns it right side up, and he does it one individual person he loves at a time. Trevin Wax wrote this. It's Caesar, who's the controversy here, ruled by conquering lands and subjugating people. King Jesus, he conquered sin and death and the grave by suffering and dying, by bearing the full weight of God's wrath towards the evil of the world and rising again to new life. Jesus is the far better king because he's the one true king. Colin Hansen about courage wrote this, the only kind of courage that will sustain us in truth and love comes from our identity as sinners saved by grace. Talked about identity last week. That our identity, identity now is we're the redeemed people of God by his grace. That's world upside down kind of stuff and thinking. We don't have to earn our way to anything. God's done all the work for us. It also means we don't expect people who aren't Christians to act like they are. I'm a Christian and I'm not always great at acting like I am. I'm guessing you aren't either. We have the Holy Spirit in us. So we have the Holy Spirit in us and still believe that there's more to be gained by disobeying God than there's to be gained by obeying him. Why would someone who's not a Christian act like they are or think like they are? So that means that when people push back, we don't freak out. When people disagree, we expect them to. What do we do? Keep showing up. Three Sabbath days, Paul will say, keep showing up. 
Keep being available. Keep building relationships. Love anyways. Refuse to sell out. Refuse to compromise. Refuse to believe the lies. There's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. That's the world turned upside down kind of stuff. See, courage is more than culture war. That's not, that's not what we're signed up for. It's more than saying no to the world. Courage is the fact that we, the Christian life is so upside down. We pray for those who persecute us. We're told to love our enemies. He didn't say don't have enemies. Those are inevitable. He said love them. How does that make any sense apart from what Jesus Christ has done for us? We understand love because while we were sinners, Christ died for us. If there is no Jesus in that story, loving your enemies is the dumbest thing in the world. All it can do is cost you. Because our instinct is revenge. Christ was redemption. So Paul loved God, and he loved the people of Thessalonica, which is why he was clear in the city that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the King. So we don't expect the world to recognize what we would see as courage, as loving, but we love anyways. Paul explained the truth, he reasoned, he showed his views came from the Bible. That's really important. He reasoned to them from the scriptures. He didn't reason to them from cable news. He didn't reason to them with listen to this podcast. He didn't reason with them with here, look at this article about why you're wrong. He reasoned to them from the scriptures. It's important that people know that we're not making this stuff up. We're not saying be more this, be more that. We're saying here's who Jesus is. That if you get mad, you get mad at the Bible. And that you work through that. Paul wrote this to Timothy. He was a young pastor he was mentoring. He said, in fact, in the book of 2 Timothy, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to look different in different contexts, but it's going to be reality. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. How much is deception present around us all the time? But there's a switch there. As for you, as in we're not them. We don't think we're better than them. We've been changed by God, so we're not them. We still sometimes act like them, think like them, but we are different. As for you, there's a different expectation, a different calling. Continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. Continue in it. You know those who taught you. It's trendy nowadays to mock an evangelical upbringing. I'm sure it wasn't perfect, but thank God for it. And you know that from infancy, you have known the sacred scriptures. That's not true of all of us, but for many, you've known them since you can first remember. We're able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, as in all the scripture points us ultimately to Jesus, a knowledge and understanding of him. Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible for kids, the subtitle is that all of scripture whispers his name. It all points us to Christ. It says all scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable. It really is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, it's interesting to me that he's talking about persecution in verse 12 and 13, and then immediately switches gears in the same stroke of the pen from his letter and talks about the authority of the Bible. What's he doing here? He's saying, we have God's word. We have a word from our God. Our God has not left us to wonder. There is still a lot of wonder in our faith, a lot of mystery. 
But what he wants us to know, he has made clear to us. So in other words, in your persecution, in your struggle, know that you have a word from God and a promise from him that's answered yes in Jesus Christ. So know that word more and know Christ more and engage in prayer and engage in the church and be around God's people and be a part of his mission because courage is gonna come out of communion with Christ. Like from relationship, courage is gonna come. The more convinced I am of who God is and his love for me and his plan for his people, I think the more courageous I'm gonna be. He says this in Philippians 1, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I'll hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, verse 28, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. Why are we not frightened? Because Jesus is king and because he is Lord. And he is ruling and reigning, and we are accepted and loved by the one who says he is for us. So I can be bitter towards the world, or I can have greater communion with God. And that's not a false dichotomy. It's easy for our hearts to get dry towards the world. I look around and go, oh, everything's going to hell in a handbasket, and whatever that even means. You know, everything's bad, everything's this, everything's that. The world's been turned, right, has been turned upside down since sin entered the world. It's been the wrong side up. It's not new. So we can either be bitter or we can believe that Jesus actually is better and love God more and love our neighbor more and be courageous because we believe these things to be true about Jesus. Christians don't have a persecution complex. At least we shouldn't. We're aware of it. The scriptures tell us to expect it. But because we continue to strengthen our faith in Christ, we're willing to sustain it in peace and in courage because we actually do believe that our God is for us until the end. He who began a good work in us, be faithful to complete it in Christ. Let's believe that together. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your love for us. We're thankful that nothing can separate us from that love. What an amazing thing to think about and know. So those in this room, maybe that are new to church or first time in the door in a long time, whatever it could be, they probably have a lot of questions. Lord, the one question I want them to not have is whether or not they're loved by you. We are loved by our creator. We're accepted by you, but on the basis of Christ who stood in our place, who absorbed the punishment of sin that we deserve, that you have pardoned us, you have justified us, you have forgiven us, you have declared us not guilty of sin, because Jesus, who never sinned, was found guilty in our place. That's why we call it the gospel, and we worship you for the good news. So we thank you for that. I ask that we will be courageous, not combative. That rather than being bitter, we'll believe that you're better, and that we'll live our lives convinced of the gospel, that we'll doubt our doubts, we'll have peace in our pain and that ultimately we'll be people who really do believe that we are ambassadors for Christ. You're making your appeal through us. Thank you for all this is true. In the name of the risen Jesus, whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing some good news.